opinions are like assholes. Everybody has one. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this before. You know, Wobbles, I'm kind of mad at you. And as a reasonable man, I'm willing to do whatever's necessary to find a peaceful solution to this problem. Welcome to Punching Up, the movie podcast where we take your favorite film, tell you why it's rubbish, smash it to pieces, and then possibly backtrack, glue it back together, and place it back on its pedestal. My name's Damien, and this is... Adam Nightingale. This week, we're looking at Sergio Leone's critically acclaimed classic spaghetti western, Once Upon a Time in the West, from 1968. Adam, could you give us a brief synopsis of the film, please? Well, like all western plots, the plot is actually quite simple. So it, it sort of, it deals with four people who converge on like one town. One of them's a mysterious man called Harmonica, who plays a harmonica. The three bandits try and kill him, or hide killers try and kill him, and he dispatches them. He's looking for a man called Frank. Frank turns up at a homestead, uh, massacres this Irish family. You find out the homestead belongs to a lady, Claudia Cardinelli, who's yeah. um, you know, turned up to marry this family, finds out the family's been massacred. And, um, and and then there's a there's a bandit called Cheyenne, uh, who's 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 framed for the murders, and that's that's just and and then and then and then what folds out, or, or rather what unfolds, is this power play between the three of them that involves revenge, land rights, and um, other spaghetti shenanigans, shall we say? Do you think that's a reasonable reasonable assessment of the plot? Yeah, yeah, a little bit garbled, that. but yeah, yeah, great. Um, okay, so I'm just gonna. Uh, do a little tiny little background before I let Adam talk uh, next. Um, so Once Upon a Time in the West came after Leone's massively successful Man With No Name trilogy starring Clint Eastwood. Uh, Fistful of Dollars, 1964 for a few dollars more, 65 and culminating with The Good, The Bad and The Ugly in 66. So in this trilogy, in that trilogy, he deconstructed the romanticism of the old American West. Now, before I let Adam loose with his library of Alexandria-sized knowledge of the film and its inception, I'll briefly say that Leone didn't really want to make it at first. He was done with Westerns after the trilogy and was much more interested in adapting The Hoods by a book by Harry Gray about uh, gangsters in New York in, over a period of time. Uh, he, he ended up going on to make that as his final film, uh, possibly one of my favorite, definitely one of my favorite films, Once Upon a Time in America in 1984. Sergio Leone was convinced to make Once Upon a Time in the West, mainly due to like a massive budget given to him by the American studio Paramount Pictures. The chance of having Henry Ford, Henry Fonda, you muppet, in the cast, whom Leone, Leone had uh, admired for years, and the promise that he could make Once Upon a Time in America if he made another Western first. So. This time he wanted to do a Western that was completely different from the previous trilogy. So he, start, he, he started thinking about a, a new type of trilogy, starting with Once Upon a Time in the West. Uh, this continued with Docu-Sucker, um, a.k.a. Fistful of Dynamite, a.k.a. Once Upon a Time, The Revolution, and ending with Once Upon a Time in America. Each film dealt with a historical period that touched America. And now... Over to my esteemed colleague, Mr. Nightingale, whom I guess is chomping at the bit to share his knowledge. So well, just, have at it, my friend. Have at it, Hoss. Can I, can I just add, add a few details before I sort of explain Always. why? 
I don't like the film. Yeah, I mean, it, he, it was the first film, I mean, the pre previous Spaghetti Westerns, the Dollars Trilogy, were all shot in Spain and Italy in Cinecita Studios in Italy, the interiors and the exteriors in sort of Almeria, Spain, around the deserts there. This was the first film that he'd shot sections of it, just in, in Monument Valley, uh, you know, in, in America, which is famous for being the the backdrop for a lot of John Ford Westerns who he admired. He, ha he, he had Ennio Morricone, who he collaborated with on all of his films, compose the score beforehand and literally play the score on set for the actors. Um, and and uh, Ennio Morricone started to get a bit more experimental. So there's this famous opening sequence where three killers are waiting for a very long time for Charles Bronson, who plays harmonica, to show up. And he'd scored it traditionally, according to him, but then he decided to abandon the score and 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 just do the score in terms of ambient sound, you know, like like the creaking of a of a sort of a water wheel, the dropping of water on one of the killers played by Woody Strode's hat, and then a fly buzzing. And he sort of turns this into this sort of um, sort of John Cage style symphony. So so he's 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 getting very, very radical with his techniques, pushing it experimentally. That, that's all I'd like to add in terms of some of the sort of technical aspects. Oh, he he he, he completely he's working with a completely new cast of leads. There's I don't know if this is true or not. Alex Cox in his book on Spaghetti Westerns: Ten Thousand Ways to Die says that the original idea was to dispense with the Dollars trilogy with the three killers by having Lee Van Cleef, Eli Wallach, and Clint Eastwood, the three stars of Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, being dispatched at the beginning by Charles Bronson. But Clint Eastwood apparently didn't want to do it, although Wallach and Van Cleef were up for it. Um, whether that's true or not, I'm not sure, because Christopher Frayling in his book, uh, mm. Something to Do With Death, just doesn't mention it at all. And he's like the the world authority on this movie. Um, why why don't I like this film? I should like it, shouldn't I, Damien? Um, yeah, I, I honestly don't know why you don't like it, mate. <laughs> well, because I've given it, I, I feel like I've given it every chance to like sort of move me, impress me, um, sort of win me over. I first saw it on VHS in the 1980s as a teenager. I sort of kind of enjoyed it. It was a bit long, wasn't really into Westerns. Got into Westerns massively in my final year at drama school and went to see at the Hampstead Everyman uh, a double bill of Once Upon a Time in the West and The Wild Bunch, which is like the most extraordinary 1960s Western double bill. Yeah. Really did, didn't enjoy, didn't enjoy Once Upon a Time in the West. Uh, really loved The Wild Bunch. And, and then a few years later, uh, the aforementioned Sir Christopher Frayling, Alex Cox themselves were giving a, a, a staged interview at the National Film Theatre, promoting Frayling's book, talking about Leone, showing clips from his film and showing in in nft1 which is a beautiful cinema isn't it in mm. massive screen um once upon a time in the west watched it felt the same way and 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 i think my problem with it is um in the dollars trilogy they're very pulpy they're technically amazing films uh sort of cinematically innovative and they're fun that's the thing and and, and they're pulpy and 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 then the rot starts to set in in sections of the good, the bad, and the ugly. So in the good, the bad, and the ugly, Sergio Leone decides he's going to introduce ideas and important themes, which aren't there really in, in, in a fistful of dollars or for a few dollars more. They're, they're, they're actually quite grubby stories about guys chasing money, trying to wipe each other out, you know, killing for amusement. 
And then he has this, 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 I think, interminable section towards the end of The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Bear in mind, I love The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, where they, they're trying to sort of cross a battlefield and they meet this alcoholic soldier and he starts to make points about the futility of war. And then you have Eli Wallach meeting his priest brother about halfway through the film. And then, and then there's this all sorts of um, sort of stuff about the burden of family. And that kind of takes over. Um, uh, 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 once upon a time in the West, and and he becomes enthused by the idea of making something profound and important. And you alluded to that in your, and so he's like really pushing the iconography. Every character is a a, a mythic type pushed mm. to the nth degree. All the fun is sucked out of the film, and you're left with these sequences. He's, he's always been a sort of a filmmaker that's leaned into long sequences, and they're even longer. And um, and and the, the dialogue's a little bit more profound, but he's, I don't think he's a great screenwriter, so it just comes across as a bit clunky. And then the thing that I've really got against him is the overindulgence of the ugly characters in his movie from this point on. So he doesn't have them. In Fistful of Dollars, it's Clint Eastwood versus a town. For a few dollars more, it's Clint Eastwood versus, then teaming up with Lee Van Cleef, two cool killers. And then Eli Wallach comes along and utterly dominates the running time of The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Eli Wallach, who's the peasant character, the most garrulous, the most kind of grotesque of the three protagonists, takes centre stage. And I think the reason that is, is because Sergio Leone wasn't cool. He knew it. He was like this chubby guy, wore belts and braces, which is referenced in Once Upon a Time mm. in the West, and was mocked for it by Clint Eastwood in one of his crueler moments on set and identified the peasant, the uneducated peasant gunfighter. And then you have the equivalent of that, of Cheyenne. And these are the most grating characters. And then in the next movie, Duck You Sucker, it's all about um, this sweaty peasant character played by Rod Steiger, who's just mugging his face off, doesn't seem to get any direction. It's just just chewing the scenery. And a confluence of all of those elements, mate, what on many levels, I think if you just didn't have anybody talk and you just watch the movie, I wouldn't say it work as a silent movie, but it work as a silent movie with Morricone's score, it would be magnificent. There are all these elements that can converge to make it, for me, quite a torturous experience to sit through where all the fun and the pulpiness that made the other three movies really entertaining and striking is sucked so- out and replaced by pretentiousness. Yes. Yeah, I don't know. He's, he's done his Dollars trilogy, which yeah. are a certain thing. You're totally right. The Good, The Bad and The Ugly does mm. kind of lean in towards more um, uh, loftier ideals. Yeah. Um, uh, but then when it comes to Once Upon a Time in the West, it's not a pulpy film. The thing that you didn't like about it is, is something that it was never going to be. Because I did watch Duck You Sucker, yeah. and I do love Once Upon a Time in America. And um, and as a trilogy that, I'm glad I saw Duck Sucker actually, because yeah. um, seeing the inception of certain ideals, certain musical cues, certain mm. bits of cinematography, direction, um, I can see the lineage now from yeah. Once Upon a Time in the West all the way yeah. through to it. Um, I, and Once Upon a Time in America is not a fun, it's not a fun, it's not a pulpy fun film, is it really? It's quite a really. serious, like, um, and so actually out of the three, Duck You Sucker is probably the most pulpy, um, really down to Steiger's performance, as you say, like Steiger's sort yeah. of mugging performance, right? Which is definitely yeah. 
linked to Eli Wallach's performance yeah. in Good, the Bad and the Ugly. So I watched, I rewatched um, the, the Dollars trilogy, um, thoroughly enjoyed uh, the first two, and then watched The Good, the Bad, the Ugly, which I, I enjoyed. Fistful of Dollars and For a Few Dollars More, I know well, like um, uh, the Gian Maria Valente um, yeah. character sort of balances the film, I think. And yeah. as yeah. you said, it's like you've got, you know, the first one is just Joe Jimbo, right? Um, yeah. So it's very easy. And I and I did what I watched Yo Jimbo straight afterwards. Um, yeah. So that was a really cool double bill, which I'd never done before. And that was just yeah. fun. Out of the Dollars trilogy, I like Fistful of Dollars more than the other three. Like I know yeah. like, critically everybody's like, oh good, the bad and the ugly. That's the most that's the the yeah. the, the star film. But I don't know, for me, yeah, I, it did feel good, the bad and the ugly did feel quite sort of like sectional, you know, yeah. like little it doesn't it didn't sort of really smoothly run through the fact that obviously they're trying to find this gold and uh, but along the way they have these little scrapes it's like a, a an yeah. episode tv show or something yeah. brilliant looks beautiful sounds amazing obviously uh has uh so many uh, cinematic tropes that have been used again and again and again um but yeah, so for me, Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, briefly, I saw Once Upon a Time in the West first time, maybe only about 10 or 15 years ago. Like I'd seen it later mm -hmm. on um, and really enjoyed it. Love the music, love the film, love the seriousness of it, love the um, the scope of it. Uh, mm -hmm. I love the fact that it deals with um, uh, progress. It deals with the end of the American West uh, yeah. as it was. It actually reminded me of Deadwood a little bit. Like, um, yeah. You know, with the, the building of the station, you had yeah. like that same sort of, it's that same time, isn't it, really? When, yeah. But I enjoyed it. I think um, I wasn't saying like pulpy in a sort of pejorative, put downy way, because I think I love pulpy stuff. Um, but I, I think I think he, I think he's reaching, you know, and I see that, that that's what he's trying to do. But I think his reach exceeds his grasp. And can I read you two quotes from people who work with him? Please. Um, that, that basically kind of make my point a little bit more articulately or, 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 or a bit more bluntly in one instance. So one's from Mickey Knox, who was like the, um, he was the, he was the sort of translator into English of his movies. And Mickey, Mickey Knox says, Leon was shallow as hell. He was bereft of profound ideas, but nobody talked him in the technique of making movies, which I think is fair enough. Um, and then uh, Tonino Valeri, who was his assistant director on A Fistful of Dollars and then went on to make a couple of very like well-regarded uh, spaghetti westerns. My name is nobody, which uh, Sergio Leone was going to direct at one point, and then one of my favourites, Day of Anger, uh, which is a Lee Van Cleef sort of starer. Um, and he says, "This is cut down from a longer quote." Says Sergio was a fantastic visualizer, and he understood the dynamics of film so well. But he'd entered the film business too early in his life before he found a culture for himself. When someone starts in the business, he no longer has much time. It is most important that he has a culture before becoming a filmmaker as a resource. And I think once he sort of abandons just the pure fun of storytelling um, and tries to engage with profound ideas, he comes a little bit unstuck because he's not a particularly profound man. And what you're left is a series of beautiful, incredibly, you know, nobody beats him in terms of framing a shot. Um, and, you know, and, and this great synthesis of, I mean, we talked about it a few episodes with Kubrick, synthesis with music. And I think Leon's collaboration with Ennio Morricone is, is peerless in cinema. Um, but what you're left with is, is someone like struggling to sort of 
connect this technique with profound ideas. Um, and and my, my, my response to that is, or the spaghetti westerns that cover similar, you know, so you've got, um, you've got a bullet for the general. It's a revolutionary western. It does cover some quite kind of complex ideas about, it's about an American intervening in the West. You've got Jean Maria Valente, who plays um, you know, like a kind of garrulous bandit, but plays it. He just know he know he knows how far to push it and 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 how far to retain you. He's a more skillful actor, I think, than Eli Wallach, and and he was the first choice actually for the Ugly. And I think that would have been a completely different film had he played the Ugly. He's a better subtler actor, but he can still go big, but have dimension. And and it's this complicated relationship between this bandit who's slowly becoming radicalized. He's just there to sell guns to the revolutionaries, but he becomes radicalized. And then he's he, he, he's kind of developing this homoerotic attraction to this American that he protects, who's this mercenary whose agenda's like not clear. And there's all these metaphors for American intervention, but it doesn't overwhelm the film. And it's fun and it's two hours and it's really entertaining. But this, uh, but the script is literate because it's written by someone we've talked about, like sort of off mic and off camera, Franco Salimus, who wrote the battle of, wrote some of the best political kind of entertainments of the sixties and seventies. He wrote, you know, the battle of Algiers and burn. And, and then he wrote a load of spaghetti Westerns. And so you've got this movie that has these ideas integrated in it. And then all the things you want in spaghetti Western, great action, kind of larger than life characters, Klaus Kinski is this like killer priest and all, and all of that sort of stuff. And I, I think Leone is at his best when the bar's low ideologically and he's just doing a brilliant entertainment. And, and I think in, in The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, the, the best thing he ever directed is the last 20 minutes of that movie, you know, what they call the ecstasy of gold sequence. And Eli Wallach contributes to that brilliantly, but he doesn't speak, which is very yeah. important. When he's like running around the graveyard and the camera's spinning around. Yeah, it's great. And then, and then the music's escalating and then it goes straight into like a lull. And then it's like, a, it's like another movement of a, of a sort of weird symphony. And then, and then straight into probably like the best gunfight he ever staged, you know, the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the Wallach, um, Van Cleef, Eastwood sort of three-way gunfight. And, and and those two sequences back to back are astonishing. And there's very, virtually no dialogue. And it's all visual. It's all, just all about visual storytelling. And there's no kind of like weighty ideas, just kind of just unbalancing Leone. The end of Good, the Bad and the Ugly definitely bleeds into the start of Once Upon a Time in the West yeah. because which is astonishing I have to say yeah it's just up there with the end of the good yeah. the bad the ugly for me yeah. I think it's so brilliant and it, it yeah. is another like what 15 to 10 15 20 minute section mm. scenery yeah. with very little yeah. dialogue tension ratcheting you know yeah. um dealing with a very quick sort of burst of violence when yeah. you know harmonica is revealed behind yeah. the train and then yeah. has that little conversation about how many horses there are and then bang 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 and it's finished yeah um brilliant uh but, brilliant, but, but, brilliant. But, then, but then to flip that and i think that's really well written i think the dialogue's great you know you bought what, what, what was it where he says he says that he looks like we bought one less horse than we needed he goes no yeah too too many. many you bring a horse for me <laughs> looks like we're Looks like we're shy of one horse. <laughs> you brought two too many. Which is great. And oh, that's yeah. pulpy dialogue. But then, but, then, but then there's a bit where he meets Shia. Or I can't remember if he meets Shia. Yeah. And, and obviously, the, the three 
killers are, are wearing duster coats because that's yeah. what Cheyenne's gang wears. So they're yeah. trying to frame. They're trying to frame him for murder, and and there's that bit where he goes, "There were three bullets, and three bullets. There were three men and three dusters, and then three three bullets. The three bullets are in those dusters, and it's just so clumsy. And it's just, and he's trying. I don't know. I, I mean, I think it's clumsy the way you said it. I think the way that he actually oh, yeah, yeah. said, like, there were, there were, there. I'm there not were... Charles Bronson. <laughs> of course, no, but I really liked it. I think that all of Charles yeah. Bronson's dialogue um, is 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 is. is spot on i mean like i that that was part of the yeah. the dialogue the part of the film that i really enjoyed the yeah. the, the writing I th for me felt quite i liked the whole you know inside the man um inside the dusters with three men inside the men with three bullets, three bullets you know yeah. i think it just it, it for me it's, it's it just, just it worked right nicely me, but yeah. you were uh, interested in fashions harmonica I saw three of these dusters a short time ago. They were waiting for a train. Inside the dusters, there were three men. So? Inside the men, there were three bullets. But, but what, what, do you, what do you think about, like, um, one of the things I remember that really irritated me when I was watching it again was uh, Jason Robards, the constant use of the word choo-choo. You know, he's just talking about because we, we haven't mentioned there's, there's there's a kind of there's there's a there's a man is he's got polio he's got tuberculosis of the bones he's like Henry Fonda's boss and he you never see him outside of a train he's got this like little frame yeah. on his head where he sort of Mr. Like, these monkey bars yeah and Mr Morton yeah and there's a bit where we just call, keep calling him Mr Choo Choo and and that just ooh it's just like just. It's just, it's just. I don't, I don't think I noticed it. I, don't, I, I don't did. Know. It's just, oh, yeah. it's like, it's like nails on blackboard a little bit. But I have to say, what I have to say, which we didn't mention, is I think, it, with, with the exception of the kind of bandit characters, which seems to have a real blind spot for. Um, and we talk about Jason Robards if you want, because I think he's actually the least uh, grating of all his ugly, well, ugly and in inverted commas characters, um, and, and underplays it more than I remember actually. And I like Jason Robards. I, I pretty much like everybody he casts with the exception maybe of Eli Wallach and Rod Steiger. Rod Steiger is just like a brilliant actor, but an overindulged actor if he hasn't got a strong his, director. His accent is uh, very similar to um, Al Pacino in Scarface. And, was and like... he, yeah, yeah, it's like that too. But, but I, wow. I, I think the casting's terrific. I think it's one of the best uses of a Charles Bronson, you know, in, in any movie, you know, and obviously that, this was his breakthrough film in, in Europe, made him a massive He's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, he is. I think he's amazing. Uh, Henry Fonda. We didn't. We didn't, we didn't really touch on. Yeah, Henry we'll Fonda. get to that in a second. Yeah, so, Henry, Charles Bronson. Um, yeah, yeah. Talk, um, talk, talk for an hour about Charles Bronson. Yeah. Um, uh, especially in this, I prefer yeah. Charles Bronson than Clint Eastwood as the main Ooh. character, and and the reason I, why. I don't mind. Yeah, um, yeah, go on. The reason why is that I think Charles Bronson has uh, more humanity. Than, yeah. uh, than Clint Eastwood's sort of, uh, was it Joe, um, Manka, and Blondie? Blondie, like, yeah. You know, yeah. You, you'd said to me, he actually, it's not, there's not no names, there's three names, whether he's called something, right? Yeah, well, that, uh, well, that was a marketing, you know, the man with my name was marketing strategy. That that was right. created by Americans to market the film because they were released at the same time. They released um, in the same year in America, which is, which is uh, another All three why. of them. Yeah, all three of them. Yeah, oh, so, okay. so they, were they were delayed for a while. Their release was delayed and then, and then they, the fistful of dollars, like came out when they made the good, bad, and the ugly. So they just banged them out one after the other, and that was another reason why they were just so massively commercially successful. And um, but no, I, I agree, I agree with you. But I think the absence of humanity in Clint Eastwood is very, very deliberate. And obviously, a lot of people have said this: the use of the word "good" 
in The Good, The Bad, The Ugly is ironic because if you, if you just top up what he does, it's, you know, apart from like, oh, you know, cold-bloodedly murdering people, he doesn't kill any kids like I think Lee Van Cleef does. He's he's easily as, as bad as, as as everybody else and, and and he's an utter mercenary, but but then he's got a charm about him that, that Charles Bronson doesn't have. And I think there's a kind of wryness and a kind of ironic distance. I, I like them both, but I think, you know, if if anything, like Harmonica is the man with no name because you never find out what his name is. Yeah. It's called yeah. Harmonica. And, and and also he's the only character, you know, he's the only character, you know, Clint Eastwood doesn't have any any legitimate reason to do what he does other than money. And at the end of for a few dollars more, he exhibits a little bit of humanity by letting Lee Van Cleef take the lion's share of the bounty after they've wiped out an entire village of bandits and killed, you know, the main protagonist. And he sort of acknowledges it. But 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 um, of, of all the main protagonists, he's the only one that's got legitimate reason. He's got he's got a moral quest. It's a quest for revenge, isn't it? And and when yeah. you find out what's happened to him, you yeah. know, absolutely justified according to the rules of the the West. You know, he's justified in his pursuit of Frank to kill him. You know, and and, and I I. I Really like the casting of Charles Bronson. I think Claudia Cardinelli maybe gives the best performance. I think she's brilliant. She's she gives stunning. The best performance. Yeah, stunning. and she's beautiful. And also, and also, yeah. to, uh, g- g- worth pointing out that you know there mm. are very little uh, uh, female parts in um, of substance in uh, the, well, none in the Dollars trilogy. Um, yeah. uh, any any parts that there are, they're either the Madonna or the whore. Um, yeah. And and Claudia Cardinale, I suppose, in this as Jill is a combination of the two. But it's testament yeah. to how brilliant she is, with little dialogue, how much she conveys. Mm. Um, and and I think that that that's one of the things that I enjoyed about Once Upon a Time in the West that wasn't yeah. in the Dollars trilogy. There was a female counterpart to all this yeah. masculinity. No, um, I agree. I agree. Um, that works for me. That uh, balances the film out, and I think it. It, for me, it leans into why I buy the loftier ideals yeah. or the, the idea that, you know, this station's being built and this progress, we're coming to the end mm-hmm. of the old West. I mean, does Charles Bronson says something about um, an ancient dying breed, doesn't he, when he's oh, talking? Oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're an ancient race. An ancient race. You've got a really good line. I like that. Brilliant line. line. Brilliant line. Yeah. And and we, we, and Henry Fonda is definitely that. As is Harmonica, right? Like, yeah. They're both they're both sort of, you know, Cheyenne is the Dread Pirate Roberts or the Dread Pirate Robards. Um, <laughs> he 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 he's he's meant to be this really sort of bad dude who has yeah. this gang that does all this, but yeah. you never once see him do anything really terrible in the film. And, he, and, he, and he's really, apart, apart from, yeah, all, yeah pat, pat, in, in this day and age, like probably like the worst thing he does is like, pat, pat and, the bomb, yeah, and then tell her just yeah. to ignore ignore it if like work yeah. is to give him a pat on the backside, you know, they've earned it. But but yeah, I mean, he's really gentlemanly, actually. He's very, very gentlemanly. And the very nearest- charming, very childlike, yeah. very vulnerable, yeah. very sort of heartfelt, you know, very yeah. balanced. Um, no, no, I have to I have to say I'm gonna I'm gonna sli- slightly slightly revealing like thoughts and feelings about the rewatch. My memory of him was being really irritating, and I think what I'd done is I'd sort of coloured him with Eli, Eli Wallach, you know, and just assumed he'd be great in rubbish. But he's actually 
really good. You know, all, yeah. all the acting is good. I think I think all the acting is actually very, very good in, in the film. And I think that, you know, and he knows, I mean, Fonda's, I mean, can we talk about Fonda? Are we done with Please, 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 yeah. please. Yeah, yeah, well, F Fonda was originally the choice to play um, the Clint Eastwood character, as was Bronson. So so what, what he does wow. is like three films in, he gets the, the, the cast that he kind of wanted for the first movie. I mean, I think he mm. really like struck gold with Eastwood because Eastwood was available. He was hungry yeah. for stardom, you know, it was TV star, things weren't happening for movies, and he just ran with it. Uh, but he wanted Charles Bronson, because Charles Bronson was a little bit better known as a supporting actor at that point. Um, he wanted Henry Fonda, because Henry Fonda obviously is like, probably second, or no, I would say it's like sort of probably John Wayne, Gary Cooper, and then Henry Fonda is the three great kind of totemic leading men of big budget westerns. And, and, and also he um, represents virtue. Um, mm. So he's played Lincoln, he's played Tom Joad in The Grapes of Wrath, and he famously plays the most sort of virtuous Wyatt Earp in My Darling Clementine, and he's a John Ford player, and like, you know, um, Sergio Leone adores John Ford. And so what he does is he, he countercasts him as a killer who's pretty much first thing he does is wipe out a family and then murder a child, which apparently in the American broadcasts, they cut before that. They cut before, so you don't know that he kills a child. They cut before that because because of the sort of um, the the horror of audiences watching yeah, Henry Fonda and Henry Fonda wanted to did, did you know this Henry, Henry Fonda when he turned up he, he like had this mustache yeah had a beard and, like, and brown contacts yeah yeah and and um, and he you know he just wanted to sort of like look like a villain and, and Sergio Leone had to explain to him no what I want is you I want Henry Fonda killing a kid and I want the shock of that I don't think he necessarily explained that because he wasn't very good at talking to his acts because he couldn't speak English but it was once he, he seemed to get his way and I can't remember how he got his way and I think it was then when Fonda saw that sequence he understood I think that oh yes you know and it, it's the fact that it is his blue eyes and it's his fondness of his face I think it's fair to say that it wasn't it wasn't because um there's there's a brilliant uh, western podcast I listen to called How the West Was Cast where they go into Henry Fonda and they, they, they dismantle the myth that this was the first time that Fonda played a villain, you know, because yeah, yeah. he's, he's played shady characters. One of, one of the Westerns that I, I sort of got you to watch, um, uh, The Tin Star. I mean, he's, he's, he's the hero, but he's, he's a bounty hunter, so he's considered disreputable. He's played out-and-out -out villains. He's, he's a villain in um, the Cavalry trilogy at Fort Apache. You know, so he plays quite quite a sort of, you know, a thinly disguised version of Custer, and he's like this kind of martinet, ruthless, sort of psychopathic officer. So he's done it. But he never shot a kid before on stage, on stage, on screen, and so, and 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 even in that, you know, they sort of, they, they grubby him up a bit. But he looks amazing. He's dressed in black. He's got these incredible blue eyes. That the, the benefit of these phenomenal close-ups, and then he shoots a child dead in in his first scene, and and then and then and and, and he's he's phenomenal in it. He's really really good. It's hard to um, yeah. it's hard to really uh, understand or imagine. Uh, the impact that would have had mm. uh, in like, you know, the late 60s, yeah. 69. Yeah. I mean, obviously when it came out in America, it was cut and so, but obviously uh, in Europe, it did very well. Um, yeah. But that scene where you've got the four of them hit out behind me, um, yeah. the four of them walking yeah. towards you. you, oh, you the child, you can even see the child that he's about to kill. In your, you don't in your, see, like, yeah. yeah, like... <laughs> Yeah, you, um, you don't <laughs> see Henry Fonda at all because the the way that they're shot, you don't really, you can't pick yeah. him out. And then yeah. they do, then uh, they do this wonderful kind of swooping round to mm. and and come round to reveal his face. 
um, what that must have been like for the audiences of the time who, you know, yeah. may not have seen all those films, may not have seen him play sort of really bad guys. And definitely he was held up as the, like, you know, the, like Tom Cruise, right? Uh, yeah. Somebody like that nowadays. Like you don't really see Tom Cruise playing bad guys so much. Not um, anymore. He's he's done it, but he's never shot. Yeah. A film before. Yeah. yeah I, shot, I think that was yeah. a crucial. That was a crucial thing. You know, that, that was yeah. shooting at the kid that was the key. Yeah. Key sequence and like matching that against Fonda as we have seen him at his most sort of beautiful and mm. and virtuous. One of the big gripes that I've got with, which really isn't to do with the film. I don't know what it's to do with, but it's it's like a personal grudge against the film. It's number ninety-five on the BFI film poll, the latest one, where where a lot a lot of the films I like were like sort of kicked out of the top hundred. Um, the Wild Bunch, which came out a year later, and I think is a far superior western on almost every level, apart from music. Um, I think you could match it like sort of technique for technique. I think it's 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 it works on many levels, like psychologically and emotionally, and for every beautifully controlled like gunfight and, and 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 sequence you have you've got these frenetically edited brilliantly edited sort of gun battles you know sort of a, a quick a quick draw versus like slow motion you know and it always suffers in these polls against once upon a time in the west and and so that's a personal gripe it's really got nothing to do with the two films but yeah. like Pekipa has been edged out. Sergio, they said one of one of the writers I really loved in the nineties. I still love him, but he doesn't write about films anymore. He writes about baseball. I think I just said a guy called Danny Perry. He wrote this incredible book called Alternative Oscars, where he went through each year and redressed the balance in terms of what did win, yeah. what should have won. won. Wild Bunch doesn't win. Doesn't even get nominated. He likes Pekipa. He, he gives it to write the High Country earlier in his career. Right. Once upon a time in the West beats the Wild Bunch for the for the for the alternative Oscar. So that's a personal grudge I've had against this film yeah. for ages. It's always, yeah. always comes I think in. You need to get over that, mate. I'd seen that Alex Cox had said that um uh for a film that's almost three hours long, there are only 15 pages of dialogue. Uh, yeah. And in a way, it really does resemble the immortal words of John Ford, which is a film is a great film when it's long on action and short on dialogue. I hope that was well, quite I say nice. it's long on action. I say it's long. <laughs> the action yeah. is very quick uh, yeah. when it happens. But it's yeah, like, it's, yeah, it's yeah, for sure. Can I, can I, can I reveal my rewatch verdict? Is, is this Please. a good time to do that? Please. Um, I sat down. It's a Sunday now um, as we're recording. I sat down a week ago um, to watch it full of trepidation thinking oh my goodness this is a long one watched it and thought oh my goodness i i may have potentially ruined the episode because i i really enjoyed it this and is where we put the film back really together again put it back on its pedestal only, everybody's only took, happy only took, only took 25 years and like four or five watches <laughs> um and i i still i still think i still think um you know like I still think that Leone's reach slightly exceeds his grasp when it comes to trying to sort of create these sort of metaphors for the aid, the dying of the West. But I just sat there, I was thinking, oh, this is a bit annoying because I'm, I'm not only I'm not only sort of appreciating it. I'm what's the word? Enjoying it and <laughs> think it's really good. And this Jason Robards performance that I thought was really grating is actually quite subtle and moving. You know, these long bits aren't quite that long. Um, the dialogue's not annoying me that much. And uh, we haven't got an episode. 
so, yeah. so, so I've, I've had to, I've had to sort of recut this is how the episode works listeners I've had to sort of reconstruct and slightly falsify my um, my my arguments prior to this point and and concede that probably does belong in the top 100 somewhere uh, but but I think I think I think I'm, I'm still I'm not I'm not going to completely completely concede all the ground um I still think the good the bad and the ugly despite its horrendous flaws in, in in you know around the civil war and the overindulgence of Eli Wallach for me is a better film I, I much rather you know if it was if, if, if fire was burning uh and and, the, and they were the last two prints of of um like once upon a time and good bad and the ugly. I could take one I would take the good the bad and the ugly for all its faults um and I actually quite like Touch of Sucker as well you know and I thought and I thought he integrated the ideas a little bit better in that as well you know and and I didn't mind I thought Rod Steiger in that was kind of two things at once he was so over the top but I still kind of weirdly felt moved by him and I, I kind of was quite happy to go along with him and I much prefer James Coburn's kind of laconic you know, weird, weird, laconic IRA man who is supposed to sort of like, yeah. you know, find heroic as as Brits, you know, things like that, you know. But you know, and and and, but yeah, I I I I didn't mind it. I enjoyed it. I actually, of all the films that we've rewatched, it was the one that I enjoyed the most. Actually, mm. and, and, that's why I said at the start. I don't know yeah. why you don't like it. So, well, I mean, I think yeah. those those lofty ideas. Um, I don't mind. I think that it's yeah. fine for a, a movie director or a, an, an artist, a director to try things and to reach yeah. for things that, you know, as you said, like maybe beyond his grasp, but uh, I salute him for doing that. And, yeah. and I think that when you add the, when you put the cinematography with the music, like you're halfway there. Yeah, well, and, and, and Ennio Morricone deserves, and, and and I think I think apparently wasn't the easiest director to work for. He could be phenomenally cruel. I mean, did, did you hear the story about Al Murlock? You know, the the third man, the guy whose name no one remembers in the, uh, the three. Yeah, films. it's a shame. He was, and he's in yeah. all. Isn't he in all the the Dollars films? No, I think he's in. He's in the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Yeah, he plays yeah, he's the, the one armed man who. Man. Yeah, yeah, and and he's, he's in yeah, the other two. I think. Oh, is he? Yeah, he's, and he's so, in. Yeah. He's and he's in Day of Anger, which I mentioned already. So he gets killed by Lee Van Cleef. He gets killed by Eli Wallach in in, in the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And he's a a sort of yeah. He's one. He's he's a sort of guest baddie in in, in Day of Anger. And yeah, he killed himself on set, didn't he? He's a, for for reason people. I think he, was, he he had a drug problem. He was wearing oh, his I didn't costume. Know that. Wow. Yeah, yeah, he was wearing his drug costume. I think Mickey Knox talks about it, and because he witnessed it, because because he and he and he threw himself out of the top window of a hotel. And Mickey Knox, the the you know the translator, literally saw his body fall, um, and then he he sort of hit the ground. He wasn't killed straight away. This this is quite a dark way to sort of come to the end of the, the podcast. But he he sort of pierced his lung a little bit with time. his rib, and then and then and then and then Sergio Leone said, "Well, you know, before he goes to hospital, make sure he take his costume off him," and was really annoyed that he, he and then he died in hospital, and he's really annoyed with him. That he 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 had a couple more scenes to shoot, and he had to sort of edit round it, you know. And and so so he wasn't a nice man, and he wasn't. Oh, sorry, what film did oh, he no. what, what film did he commit suicide on? Oh no, Once Upon a Time in the West. It was his last this? film. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. wow, I didn't yeah, know that. Story. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, no, wow. I didn't know that prior to researching, but yeah, it was a horrific story, and wow. and shows and shows Leon off to be quite a on many others quite an unpleasant human being when he's in the 
when he's basically in, in, in the maelstrom of making a film, that, that, that that's his focus. And so even, even one of his actors dying on set doesn't really kind of affect affect him that much. But, but that story's still worth telling because Al, Al Murloc, yeah, that's wow. Al Murloc's testimony to cinema. And, 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 and you know, and he's, and, he, and it's, um, it's indicative of all these great um, character actors that sort of pepper his movies and other movies whose names we don't know, you know, and, and, uh, and I think I think he founded the uh, I think he founded the is it the, the Actors Centre in London as well. He sort of came over to London and was he was a method guy. Wow. And then, yeah, it just he became famous for being this face in spaghetti westerns and 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 like the the the, the gunman that we don't remember. Hey, we done pretty well on like not spoiling today. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, we're always spoiling a film, so I'm sure. But we'll but, but then but then the outcome of this film is is kind of it's not going to be a massive surprise to anybody, is it? You no, know, it's a way, it's, no. You know, it's, it's, it's plot is very traditionally western, so you know, it's not like Charles Bronson like blows his own brains. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, This yeah, life yeah. of vengeance is too much for me. And like like yeah. shoots himself. It doesn't, it doesn't end that way. Um, <laughs> so just... so they, they found apparently they found it. Sorry, mate, I'm cutting you off. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, they found. Um, uh, the film sort of boring. It, it it made me think about how you know a piece of music, a composition. You know, you, you think okay, once upon a time in the West is what is it two hours forty minutes? Is it something like that? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, it's a long piece of a film. But splice twenty one minutes out of it, you think okay, that should sort of fix the the yeah. the. Like you were talking about, we were talking about 2001, the same thing. Yeah. I think once you take that 21 minutes out, it takes something out of the character building, takes something out of the yeah. um, the rhythm of the whole film. Uh, yeah. The New York Times magazine called uh, uh, entitled the um, review, uh, Tedium in the Tumbleweeds. I thought that was quite funny. And they said, they said in it, it's too slow, too long. It just goes on forever. Well, I mean, that, that's, that's what I thought, I thought. Before, yeah, before yeah. watching it, but but here's here's an interest, interesting point. Why do directors after a certain point? Because I mean, I mean, you can't say that about Ford and Hawks, and because they were still working in the studio system, uh, movies had to be, even though they had a lot of power, movies had to be a certain length. So a lot of the greats that are starting to kind of come to the end of their careers and their lives at this point, the Hitchcocks, Hawks, their, their, their films routinely throughout their career stay about within the one hour, one and a half hour, two hour mark. But but this this is this is this is the kind of explosion of the auteurs, isn't it? Mm. Um, and why is it that once a director gets a degree of control, his films get longer and longer and longer, and not always to their credit. And you can see that yeah. today in like James Cameron, you know, like tight ninety minutes for the Terminator, two and a half hours for Aliens, and then three hours, four hours, a day and a half. And if you take Avatar as like a continuous sequence of movies, yeah, it's that, like that, a that's week. never going to end. And, and, yeah. and the same with, you know, and Spielberg and Tarantino, you know, 90 minutes yeah. for Reservoir Dogs, three hours for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And the only, but, but you know, does, does it always have to be that way? You know, because the only, the only director I can think of who's still working at that level critically and in terms of artistic control that came up kind of a little bit after this during the Scorsese's and the, and um, is who, 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 as a point of principle, keeps his movies almost um, as a point of principle to ninety minutes. Is David Cronenberg because David Cronenberg's philosophy is like you can't tell it in ninety minutes. Probably not worth telling, and, and don't test the audience's yeah. patience. And he knows that his films are kind of heavy anyway. Um, and, and he just keeps. And I think the longest film he's ever made is like one hour three quarters. Why? Why is it that auteurs feel that creative freedom? Um, 
has to be manifest in increasingly long movies. And, and Sergio Leone is particularly guilty of this. And then like Once Upon a Time in the West is like four hours long and it's and it's and it's in America. Sort of, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. Once upon a time in the West felt four hours long, or at least I thought it did. <laughs> too slow, too long, it. just goes on forever. Yeah, and and um, you know, and, and so Once Upon a Time in America just is four hours long. I, I don't mind. I mean, I you know, I I, I, I do it. up to a point. I don't yeah, I do. But, but it's, be, I think, it's become the norm now, you know, it's like, it's like, well, it's like. Also, like within the last sort of 10, 15 years, we've had the birth of like um, uh, 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 HBO and television series yeah. that tells, you know, stories over 10 hours, um, yeah. you know, and they get extended. So if a film is three hours, three and a half, I mean, the Bertolucci 1900 is six hours long, you know, and I, I watched yeah. that years ago and, and have it to watch again, but I've just got to find like six hours where I'm actually going to sit down and just watch it yeah. really. I don't know. Am I going to be able to, I don't think I'm going to be able to get through it in one sitting. But it's sort of spilled over into commercial cinema as well. You know, like just films that aren't directed by auteurs. They all, you know, if, if they're for a big audience, they've got to be three hours long. And all the know, Marvel like, films now, some of yeah, those are like yeah, really yeah. long. What's wrong I, with the type? The only, the only sort of big temple movie I've seen that I felt like justified it's almost three hour length was John Wick four. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why, because, you could have told and that story in an hour and a half. I enjoyed and, 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 that. And probably like probably an hour and a half of it is pure fighting, isn't it? But you know. Yeah, and and it it probably could have done with an edit. It probably could have yeah. done. Like I enjoyed it. Like, we both saw it in the cinema. Oh, so, no, I loved you know, it. Yeah, and yeah. and it was fun. But then Charlie didn't like it. You know, I, or no, he didn't like it. He liked it, but he felt it was too long. He felt yeah. like we, it was we, just... have to, we have to explain like who who Charlie is to the listeners. Yeah. Assuming this bit stays in, which it probably won't. Yeah. But, but yeah, yeah, cutting him out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Paul Charles, a, a mate of ours who um, was at drama school with us. Yeah, um, yeah. He, yeah. Very, very Charles. talented man. Very multi-talented yeah, very talented. man. Yeah. yeah, very nice dude. Yeah, well, just for the podcast, anyway. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that people do get a little bit overindulgent when it comes to timings. I'm not totally against a long film, like I loved. Cinema Paradiso, like I'll watch mm. the extended cut. I'll watch the yeah. Betty Blue extended cut of it. You know, like I'm I'm happy yeah, to. Yeah, well, there's obvious time. obvious reason why people want to watch the extended cut of Betty Blue, though, isn't it? You yeah, know? it's not like it's not like it's all extended of sex <laughs> scenes, though. But I hear what you're saying. It's more ex extended scenes of, of Beatrice Dahl going crazy. Um, yeah, <laughs> oh, it's not yeah. necessarily the most funnest thing to watch, but yeah. um, she does it very well. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think sometimes it 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 um, is unnecessary. I think with Once Upon a Time in the West, I didn't feel the length of it. Mm. I didn't feel at any point like but, oh, but, get on but duck, ducky suckers too long. Yeah, it? yeah, because you, yeah. you, you got that sequence, that really weird sequence where you've got the uh, James Coburn flashback as to. Guy, goes, you know, like, that goes on for four minutes or something, or I don't know if they cut it down. Creepy but like, as well. It's just it's like weird, so mate. It's really yeah. weird. This is right at the yeah. end of the movie. I just want to yeah. watch the end of the movie. <laughs> I don't need to see like like basically a remake of Jules and Jim. I was this you exactly know? what I was thinking. <laughs> it's, like, it's like James Coburn, like Minaj and Slow you know, motion. Sort of, yeah. yeah. And he's like grinning yeah. and like, is he going to kiss the bloke? Is he going to kiss the girl? Yeah, is yeah, yeah. Do? It's Where like, it hadn't been why, really why are we here in this movie? This is a movie about the revolution. And it's just, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and it's just it's, it's stuff like that. It's just like when a, when a director gets a certain amount of, uh, I Chimino. don't know. Yeah, Chimino. But, but, then, but then, you know, 
Ch Chimino just blew it all, didn't he, with Heaven's Gate? I want to just put a pin in Heaven's Gate. Like, I've never seen it. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. I like um, it. I like maybe, it. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a film that we could put in as far as a lot of people didn't like it. Yeah, yeah, they didn't. No, yeah. um, and it would uh, afford me to watch it, and I did, and I really enjoyed uh, the Deer Hunter as well. Yeah. So those long, and Altman does long films as well. You know, um, Woody Strode. Did you yeah. know that it was his wife, um, who was the Native American in that first scene? Her name is Luana Strode. Ah, oh, no, no, I, I'd forgotten. I had read that, but I'd forgotten. No, no, yeah. That's a cool little moment, right? Because and, and also, he stops her from also, going out, yeah. and then he lets yeah. her go out at the end. I think. And and um, one of, one of the reasons, because I always I always thought in my mind, you know, it's one of these great unfilmed scenes. Wouldn't it have been marvelous to have Lee Van Cleef, Clint Eastwood, and Eli, Eli Wallet gunned down by by Charles Bronson? The way, if the myth is correct, Sergio Leone originally wanted. But then you wouldn't have had perhaps the the best sort of cinematic monument to Woody Strode. He's yeah. just like oh, this incredible pioneering before Jim Brown in the Dirty Dozen. There was Woody Strode. Was, I think it was a footballer turned actor, you know, just brilliant in John Ford movies, but never, ever properly really utilized. I think he, what, there was a film he did called Sergeant Rutledge where he's, he's center stage, John Ford courtroom drama. And, and, then, and then his great legacy is like the close ups he gets. And I think what he said actually, he said, I don't speak, but no one ever gave me a close-up like that, mm. you know. Uh, and and so so he was eternally grateful to Sergio Leone for kind of preserving his face and just giving this in this incredible scene. And also, you, you know, you know, I, I like sort of weird, modified, fetishistic guns in westerns. And he's got the best gun in the film with his like sawn-off Winchester, like that he uses as a handgun. And yeah. he actually shoots. He actually clips Charles Bronson as well, doesn't he? It's his yeah, bullet. he's the one. Who, yeah. And and then I like the way his Charles Bronson scene like, as well. makes, makes his makes his makes a makes a sort yeah. of sling out of his sleeve. So th those little details are great. And 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 he was always very very good, Sergio Leone. On he was good on the and and again this this goes back to my 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 point originally. You can sum this up in this. He's always very good on the individual details. We had to get a gun right. He had to get like the coats right. Uh, everything had to look. Um, and then you will kind of miss a big broad sweep, you know, like so like in Ducky Sucker, uh, Alex Cox points out, doesn't like the film. Um, Alex Cox points out that, you know, he, you know, he's a detail man. Then Alex, Alex Cox points out it has an IRA character in 1913 and the IRA wasn't established until 1990. He just doesn't care Brilliant. about that. And, yeah. and you know the story about this, why he called it Ducky Sucker? He says because he because he because he um, he he thought that was just a phrase that Americans used. And, you, and you've got all the Americans on the set, like James Cohen, because no one uses this phrase. Because yes, they do. And he's telling an America, who, you know, that, that, that this is an idiom everyone uses. Because no, they don't. Because they just don't use it where you come from. And and and, and, there's a, and there's a similar story to that. I don't know if you ever seen Jack Black talk about his IMDb credits. He did he did a, a racing film called Skid Marks, and he, and he shot it in Eastern Europe. And he told the the director, he says, you can't call this film Skid Marks. And he goes, why not? It's 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 the it's the it's the burn marks of a tire. Because yeah, I know that that's that that is what it is. But in America, skid marks <laughs> it means something else. And he was going, no, 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 no. And he was completely overruled by this 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 very arrogant director who insisted that he, he he had more of a grasp of idiomatic American than Jack Black. 
and then the film came out called Skin Park. <laughs> and so Ducky Suck is a version of that. And, and like no one likes that title. And uh and yeah, yeah which is weird. why it's got loads of other titles. Yeah, they, they they go out of their way to call it everything else, like what's yeah. time, the time. And then there's another film called Fistful of Dynamite, right? Is it a Terence Hill no. film or something, maybe? Oh, I don't I don't know. I mean they'll yeah. constantly I have no idea. I mean, you, you get into the minutiae of, of of like people ripping off titles, like you know, there's there's, yeah. there's two official Django movies, but about a thousand right. Django movies, yeah. And and you know, it's like and yeah, so just people, there just didn't seem to be any any real kind of, it was, it was a bit sort of Wild Westy in terms of like just copyright and just ripping off titles and, mm. you know, and, you know, I'm just going to call this movie Django, even though it's got nothing to do with it, just because it'll make a few more lira, you know, yeah. and, and, and an extra an extra, an extra thousand lira or something like that, you know. So there we go. Um, before we finish, I just want to I just wanted to mention quickly the uh, shot of Claudia Cardinale laid on the bed. Um, uh, oh yeah, with the um, the the sheets, the gauzy sort of thing. Yeah. She's dressed in black, very funereal, uh, um, reminiscent of the uh, final shot in Once Upon a Time in America uh, of yeah. De Niro uh, with his opium pipe from above yeah. with a big smile. Yeah. I thought, oh, that's that's a nice little link there. Yeah. Obviously, I didn't see that before. And, but. and I think the cinematographer, I think the cinematographer was it, his, uh, he said that was his favorite shot in the film. I mean, he, yeah. yeah, he's, he's very, Amazing. very proud of that shot. Yeah, yeah. it's beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. And uh, Gabrielle uh, Fazzetti, who played Morton, the rail baron, um, yeah. was Draco in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Oh, was he? Oh, I didn't know that. And, and he was also Sandro in La Ventura. Who's like yes, I, I, knew was, I, knew, I knew he was in La Ventura, uh, but I couldn't remember who he was. So, yeah, and 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 one more thing, they loved it in France. They it was oh, yeah. shown in a cinema for two years after it yeah. came out, and um, everybody started wearing those dusters. Uh, the yeah. students all started wearing those dusters apparently to, around the time of the student protests in the late sixties. Yeah. Uh, that's quite yeah. interesting. Uh, okay, before we finish, who was your favourite character in the film? Oh, harmonica. I think yeah, I like I like Charles Bronson. Um, uh, yeah, and, and I think he through his own fault a lot of the time you know he's he's not used as as as, as brilliant as he could be as a leading man uh, and i think with the this and my, my favorite film of all time is charles bronson film hard times i think those two those two movies that's walter him hill is that right walter hill like ben, i have to i have like, to watch that i haven't seen it yeah no no please do it. it's magnificent you know um and so i think he's brilliant and and it's the normal rule is like if, if, he, if he removes his mustache it's probably going to be a good film you know, <laughs> <That's> great. <laughs> if he puts his mustache on, it's probably going to be, especially in the 80s, it's going to be a sleazy yeah. revenge thriller director. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Winner, the guy that did the original And probably have a number at the end of it. Yeah. Although yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have the word death in the title at some point. But, but what's, the, what's your, who's your favourite character? I think the same. I think Harmonica. Yeah, um, yeah, he's great. I, I think he's, he's brilliant. And not enough of him. Not enough of him. No, no, I take that back because, you know, you want to use him. Less is more with that character, I think. You know. Yeah, his his introdu his, his his introduction when Robards comes into the pub and he's just sat there yeah. cross-legged playing the harm. No, not his introduction. Yeah. Obviously, <clears> it's <throat> at the start, but yeah. that yeah. other way he sat cross-legged and just playing the harmonica is a brilliant scene. And I love the interplay between Robards yeah. and him. Um, yeah, that uh, they all respect each other with uh, unknowingly, like yeah, and, he, and, and towards the end, the you know, without giving the end away, you know, their 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 sort of final scene together is great. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, but but all, all, yeah, no, he's great. He's marvelous. And also, we didn't mention it was a bit of a kind of apprenticeship for future great filmmakers as well, because working on the story 
was none other, not the script, but the story with none other but Bernardo Bertolucci and Dario Argento, you know, the two people who sort of, you know, contrived the story with Leone. Didn't, didn't, didn't actually work on the screenplay, but, and then went on to kind of illustrious careers yeah, in, yeah, in, in Italian sense. Yeah, yeah, you know, so there we are. Once yeah, time we've, we've built it. We've put it back together, mate. So anybody we have completely. Like, no, it, yeah, it's, well, it's I'm still annoyed. Still annoyed that it, it constantly edges out the wild bunch. Yeah, that just yeah. happens. I, I was... like, Barry Norman, Barry Norman, in his hundred hundred films of of the century, has the wild bunch in there. It doesn't have any Sergio And then when he revises it, he removes the wild wild bunch and sticks Unforgiven in there. And it's like it's just the wild bunch is doomed just to be sort of downgraded, disrespected, yeah, out. And but it but it will. I have to watch that again. We'll be watching it in a thousand years when all these other films have like you know just just been forgotten and the dust. I think I might watch it again, and if I don't like it, then we can bring it in here and that and get you really riled up, mate. Yeah, yeah, you're gonna see (laughs) see an angry, angry me. <laughs> it's like this might be the end of everything. Um, <laughs> um, well, that was that's, it'll be my revenge for the musicals. Um, anyway, you haven't done uh, one yet. You know, it's just like oh, I know. Well, we were talking about it last last time. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, why don't you reveal what the next episode is going to be? Well, the next episode is another western, but it's a western hybrid. It's a comedy musical western. A uh, little bit of music, not too much, Damien. Um, and 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 it's it's Cat Baloo, another sixties western. Not not necessarily regarded. Not one. Well, there's no necessarily about it. Not regarded as a classic. It's a beloved bank holiday favourite. And the thing that I'm going to focus on again, my favourite genre is the western. One of my favourite actors is Lee Marvin, and I'm going to focus. It's going to hurt me to do this on his Oscar-winning performance in Cat Baloo. Interesting. I haven't seen it, so I'm looking forward to seeing it. It's not three hours long, so that's great. I think you're going to like it. Uh, Yeah, maybe I'll I'll hate it as well. Who knows? It's 88 Uh, minutes. 88 minutes. That's so easy. I can just whip that off. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, well done, mate. We did another one. Um, congratulations. I think we should say as well um, and get into the habit of saying, if you like the podcast, please subscribe. Uh, give yeah. us good reviews on yeah, Apple, it. Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts and tell your mates. Pod feed. yeah. Two old, two old dudes talking about films. Yeah. You know? one, one enlightened, one bitter and twisted. <laughs> and then maybe they'll ways. switch around at some point. Conducting. Yeah. <laughs> Petty feuds against <laughs> dead dead directors who couldn't care less what I think. <laughs> yes, I like it. All right, mate. Well, from Sydney, Australia, adios. And from, and from... Um, Nottingham, England, an English goodbye. The mission has been completed. Groovy.